the You Had Me at Curio podcast, December Staff Picks, Volume 1. I'm your host, Ricky Camilleri, and this is the podcast where me and the Curio team go over some of our favorite films, first-time watches, or deeply cherished sacred texts that are in the collections offered up this month, December 2021. Those collections are Paradise Lost, Epics, Opening Night, Adrenaline Junkies, of course, the rotating circuit collection, which highlights some of the best work to come out of film festivals in the last decade or two. But first up, we're going to be talking Against All Odds with Ithia Riazza Perez. Ithia, uh, tell me, what for you does Against All Odds mean? Yeah, so this collection is um, these characters find themselves fighting against impossible odds. And then they still somehow prevail. And it's kind of like a reminder to us that we are capable of more than we think, even if the whole, like it seems like the whole world is like conspiring against us. Um, so it's a, a great collection, a collection with amazing movies. Um, Barbara, the one that I'm going to be talking to, but we also have like Sorry We Miss You, Beanpole, uh, Army of Shadows, Pianist, classic, Jane Eyre. So yeah, it's a, it's a really fun collection. So uh, Ishii, you chose the film Barbara. all about this movie so barbara is uh directed by christian petzold i'm not saying his name correctly but um oh it, so now you're not saying somebody's yes, name correctly I, I <laughs> correctly um he's a german um filmmaker and um uh, it talks about it's about an east german doctor who is banished from um berlin where she works at a hospital there uh to a small country hospital after she tries to escape uh, West Germany during the 1980s. So this is surrounding the 19, the issue in the 1980s in Germany where you had the West and the East. Um, and it's like a psychological, political, and like suspenseful, suspenseful uh, thriller altogether. And um, it's starting Nina Hostage's Christian's like muse. Um, she's also in like Phoenix, for example, that's another Christian movie. And um, She's just like that. She's just great. She's magnificent in it and super like tense and like intelligent throughout the movie. And um, it, it's, you know, it's it's a thriller. And you also see like the reality of what was happening at, the, at that time in Germany and um, how everyone was in constant surveillance. Um, and there was like a separation between like the public and the, the private uh behavior around the citizens and um it, it, we see that through the movie where she's constantly like her apartment is uh being searched her body from top to down is being searched um and yeah i just i think it's 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 one of christian's best and now when you say one of christian's best uh i it's just, it sounds like you've seen a lot of his films he's an incredibly important filmmaker right now in the international circuit it must be um, amazing to be able to curate and then and talk about and show a Christian Petzold film to the world. 
yeah i've you know i've heard from a few different people that like he's like the new era of german filmmakers which i think is an interesting way um to explain his work and um yeah his latest film is indine um i have not seen it but i've heard good things um but yeah i also do love phoenix as well it's, it's a great movie um for my against all odds selection i chose jean-pierre melville's uh army of shadows is a film about French resistance fighters during World War II. It came out in 1969, but it was kind of hidden after it came out, or at the very least, it wasn't really talked about because it was in the midst of the Algerian War and the repercussions surrounding the Algerian War. And so I don't think anyone in France felt too positive about their resistance (laughs) background um, or how much resistance they actually had. And then it was uh, re-released in... uh, I believe in the early aughts and it was championed by everybody. And um, if you've ever seen a Jean-Pierre Melville film, he's a master of camera movement, especially motivated camera movement, really beautiful, fluid camera movement all throughout his films, but especially in this. And in this, he kind of slows it down a little bit um, because it's a uh, it's a quiet, very detail oriented film in terms of what it was like to be a resistance fighter and these sort of horrible decisions that you have that you had to make for the better of uh, uh, of the country to fight fascism, and um, it's also the production design is incredibly beautiful. Sometimes you watch a uh, I think you you watch a a a uh, you watch like a new version of an old movie a, a remastering of some kind and you wonder like was all of this detail really there for the filmmaker in like 1965 or was this like in the remastering they could kind of go through and be like okay let's really bring up this hue of blue in every shot because it is the color palette in on an army of shadows is so specific and 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 unique and also like a testament to film. Like you just, I just don't feel like you capture colors like that on, on, on digital these days. Though I will say, I think Beanpole, which we talked about on another one of these podcasts, uh, I think that was shot digitally and the colors in that are incredibly striking. Yeah. It's funny, like the blue, like the dark blue, like palette on Army of Shadows, kind of like, you know, the name of the movie is Army of Shadows. So it's kind of funny yeah yeah absolutely i mean and it's and it's playing with those those the darkness of of uh uh, of the film i mean i feel like even when it's in the daytime it still feels like it's kind of being shot at night there's some sort of like uh for lack of a better word shadowy hue (laughs) over over the over the lens but uh it's a classic and it's uh more than worth a watch it's a must watch for uh, a number of reasons uh because Melville was a master and um, everything that falls under that umbrella is, uh, is, is there to see on the screen. It was my first time watching it. I'm embarrassed to say, uh, and it 
lived up to everything I had ever heard about it. I was really happy to get the chance to watch Army of Shadows and definitely going to dive back in and watch Cold Mountain for the first time, which I've never seen. Probably rewatch The Elephant Man and um, Beanpole and, uh, is an amazing, and Four Months, Three Weeks and Two Days are incredible films. Probably not going to dive back in and rewatch those myself, but other people, if they haven't seen them, should watch them for the first time. Yes, no, please watch. They're great, great, great movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ishi, thanks so much. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Unlike other classics, West Side Story grows younger. next we have lauren clark talking to us about the collection opening night and the films in there are 2009's passing strange 1983's yentl 1980's times square 1979's hair 1971's fiddler on the roof 1957's funny face 1951's here comes the groom 1950's riding high and what lauren is here to talk to me about i don't know if anybody's ever heard of it little known esoteric film 1961's west side story hey lauren hey how's it going it's going. So uh, are you, first and foremost, are you excited about the upcoming West Side Story remake? I'm so excited. I was just watching the trailer. It's funny, I, I grew up dancing, so um, musicals were like a big part of my world growing up, but I feel like they weren't seen, I guess it depended on like which group you're in, but they weren't always super cool, but I feel like they're having a comeback right now. I, I feel like every few years, or at one point every other decade, they try to bring musicals back and then they, and then they're not able to like one musical <laughs> pops, like La La Land popped. So and true. now it's like, let's try to do this because I think people who make movies generally love musicals. Yeah. Um, I think there is sort of, I remember the dance community too, growing up was always sort of like hemming and hawing about the fact that there weren't any more modern musicals. And it is interesting because like La La Land's a rarity in that, in that sense, usually they're trying to do remakes. Um, but when I was watching West Side Story this time, I feel like sometimes what is tough about musicals, which I agree, is like you watch them and it feels like when you're watching it on stage and something's exaggerated and over the top it's different than like when you watch a film it's almost easier to to sort of like be taken out of the story and feel like it's over the top and you know the dialogue or whatever they're singing about is almost like too much um so I I understand like that point when people sort of um aren't the biggest fan of musicals but when I was watching West Side Story back I, I don't know if it's sort of the era we're in right now, like post COVID or whatever, if there's sort of like a heightened, um, like life is just sort of like, sort of there's like this heightened reality where musicals don't feel as extreme or, you know, like that sort of, 
uh, life and death scenario that I think in the past, maybe I was like, this is overboard, doesn't feel as overboard right now. Mm. I, you know, the most common held complaint about musicals that you always hear is like, I just don't understand why they start singing and dancing. And it almost feels like you stop believing it when they start talking because the music, the musical elements are so intrinsic to the story itself that when it becomes just a straight drama, that's when you kind of pull back from it. Not me, I love West Side Story, but I think that's why people, it's embraced more, even more outside of the, just the musical community. So for my pick for opening night musicals, 1980s Times Square. There are 8 million stories in the big city. People say I have a bird's eye view. Perched up here night after night, looking right down into the heart of the beast. Yes, stop coming with me. Will you get in the car? Yes, it's story time. This is Johnny LaGuardia. It's that kind of night and that kind of feeling. Oh, Pamela, this is... I, I remember that you saying you were going to yeah, do Times Square. This movie is a first-time watch for me. It had come recommended on several occasions by my partner. And I think I had heard, she had said what it's about. She's like, it's about two teenage girls who like start a band in Times Square. And if you look at the poster of it, it it looks very like uh, frivolous and like, like, you know, two kind of like artsy teenage girls in Times Square are frolicking, but it is not that. <laughs> it is incredibly gritty it is like someone took a sleazy exploitation movie from the early 80s and set two and put two really strong uh like teenage female characters at the center of it who are like living on the street runaways and start kind of start a punk band but mostly they're just trying to get by and they turn into local celebrities because of the um the dj the sort of the, the big city dj played by tim curry uh, and I was shocked by this movie. I want, I watched it last night and it was nothing like what I expected. I, I think I just expected something that was like a, a made for TV movie. Uh, cause that's kind of what the poster looks like, but it's much darker than that. Just the song that they write alone, which has lyrics and, and, and slurs that I can't use over this podcast rightfully, uh, is shocking and one of them starts working in a, in a, in a strip club. She doesn't dance, but she's, she's pretty close to, to, to stripping and she's supposed to be like 15 years old. And, uh, the strip club is kind of, is owned also by like this very gentle patriarch of a man who kind of takes care of her and the, uh, and the, and the other girl. And, uh, it goes into some really dark places and is constantly exploring their mental health uh, because uh, early on they're decided by sort of like wards of the state and their parents that they're uh, mentally unbalanced and they escape from the institution and are running around the streets. And it kind of turns out that one of them has mental health issues and the other one doesn't so much. And uh, it sort of ends up going really dark and really deep down um, what her issues are. And it's a surprisingly powerful and, and beautiful film that also rides this line of, uh, you know, making sure that it gets all of the big pretenders songs and uh, Roxy music songs of the time into the soundtrack and out on the air. Plus you have Tim Curry doing a, a DJ voice over the whole movie, which is a lot of fun. And it's a musical? Well, it's, I mean, there's a lot of music in it and there are some scenes where they, they perform, um, 
you know, one of the songs is God damn, I'm a dog. Now I'm a dog. Uh, and then the other one scenes, the other, the other song is, uh, so is your daughter. I believe it's something like that it's called. Um, but it's not, it's not a musical per se. It's more of like, you know, Hey, now we're going to play one of our songs for the radio. Hey, now we're going to play one of our songs at the strip club. And then the soundtrack is, is, uh, punctuated by a lot of, uh, a lot of great needle drops. This seems like such an awesome, like discovery movie. Like, I don't know if I ever um, would have come across this film any other way. And yet it seems like such, such a gem. It's one of those movies that will, the kind of movie that it is, it will, it will never be remade. There will never be another movie like it. It is so specific and unique and, and, rambunctious and like dangerous feeling you know the girls steal an ambulance in the beginning of the movie and are just driving around in an ambulance you know they're 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 dangerous kids but they're having fun and the movie is having fun with them the whole time i loved it so much it's 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 one of one of my favorite discoveries i've had in a long time i'm really happy that it's that it's on Carrio because i had to you know for me to see it I had to find a, a, a file somewhere and it looked like a rip of an old VHS. Like it's not an easy to find movie. Yeah, even the like 80s nostalgia, which I feel like people are so into right now. Um, this film, even just looking at the poster, I'm like, I love what whatever's happening here. Uh, it seems really special. I highly recommend you, you, you watch this movie. You're gonna love it. Yep. It's the kind of thing that everybody should see it. And I would love for it to like, get some sort of resurgence where it becomes a sort of a known classic. But I will say the song in the middle of the movie that they perform is what will forever stop it from becoming a classic that people talk about. It is extremely offensive. <laughs> okay. I was, it's almost like, yeah, it's interesting because you're like, why, why isn't, why didn't it have, you know, sort of the moment that it deserves it. It's like, there's that one thing. Um, but besides, besides that, yeah, maybe, maybe it can have um, something now, like a, a little yeah. bit of a nostalgic resurgence. I was asking that question throughout the whole movie up until this one point. And then I turned to my partner and I was like, oh, okay, this is why this is it's why. not <laughs> a, like a known classic. That's so interesting. Like how you can have, yeah, a, a film like that, that does so many great things, but then, but then there's one thing. Well, in my opinion, it's a dated thing that they do, but I, uh, and I have the privilege to not be, um, I don't really like to scrub things clean, nor do I think that like we should not watch things or talk about. And so when I watch it, I see it as like a piece of history. And I think it's pretty incredible that they did that. And the message is coming from the right place, but it's just, uh, the language that's being used is, uh, no, Oof, not not a lot of people aren't going to aren't going to get get on board with this movie these days. No, absolutely. And I mean, if if we did that, we would have nothing to watch. You could say the same about West Side Story. Um, mm -hmm. It's all sort of a piece of its time um, and obviously varying ways. Um, but I I'm going to I'm going to have to watch it. <laughs> yeah, you're going to you're going to love it. Well, Lauren, uh, thank you so much for talking about uh, the opening night uh, collection with me. Yeah, no, this was great. I'm really excited. I also feel like with the holidays, something about musicals and the holidays just go really well together. Um, maybe it's like the family sort of oriented vibes. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's a great collection. Absolutely. All right, thanks. Thanks, Lauren. Big hands into you. Sleeves is the voodoo.
teach people who aren't like you. Uh, right now, I'm joined by Jordan Jacinto, and we're going to be talking about the Paradise Lost collection. Um, Jordan, how, how are you guys defining Paradise Lost? What exactly does this entail? I suppose the content team had um, a theme of dystopian movies or post-apocalyptic, um, and the theme that, or the connective tissue that I found is usually in these stories, these dystopian uh, societies or worlds come about after trying to do something good, right? Like it's the idea of achieving paradise, but inevitably it's lost because this, you know, really ambitious, uh, morally ambiguous uh, ideology kind of goes the other direction. And I think all these films in one way or another share that. And now um, there's some incredible films in, in this collection. Just to list a few on top of the ones that the two that you and I are going to talk about, there's Battle Royale 1 and 2, Spielberg's Minority Report, Delicatessen is in here, uh, Alpha, Godard's Alphaville, Carpenter's Escape from New York. You have John Frankenheimer's Seconds, which is a movie that I love. If, if you are a person that makes movies and you haven't seen like the opening 10 minutes of Seconds, like get on it. It's just like a masterclass in editing. Um, and then you have like Z for Zachariah, The Last Days. But you and I are on the are on the Cronenberg connection here. Uh, you have chosen um, the young son of David Cronenberg, Brandon Cronenberg's first film, Antiviral. Fame, glamour, perfection. What if you could find it all at the tip of a needle? Here at the Lucas Clinic. We strive to bring you closer to celebrity than ever before. With samples drawn directly from the source, you can be connected in ways you never imagined. Do you not agree that the mania surrounding celebrity is reaching an unhealthy level? No, I don't. My clients want to feel more connected to those people that they see in the magazines and on television. <sighs> Enjoy. So far, I've had all her diseases. <laughs> Must have been expensive. Is there any way you could spread it? Starring Caleb Landry Jones. I actually have not seen this movie. I've seen Possessor, his follow-up movie. But tell me a little bit about uh, Antiviral and maybe how it relates to the, the sort of the family. Definitely. I uh, was in the same boat before uh, a few weeks ago. I hadn't seen Antiviral, but I saw Possessor and I was really impressed by it. Um, I, I really liked it a lot. And so I was excited to check out Antiviral. And you could see, um, you know, the, the Cronenbergs, especially, uh, you know, Brandon right now, but David Cronenberg early on in his career was sort of obsessed with this. Uh, I've seen a lot of film reviewers describe it as gooey, mm -hmm. you know, this sort of like uh, organic special effects, uh, trippy time warp, uh, alternate realities, uh, deformed bodies, you know, and antiviral has all of that. And because it's Brandon Cronenberg's first film, I was, um, I was really impressed with, you know, the, the craft. It, it's very well-made, very clean. It knows what it is. Uh, it's definitely not for everyone. I'll, I'll say that. Um, but as far as it connects to Paradise Lost, it's essentially about 
uh, a not too distant future where celebrities and celebrity culture is paramount, so much so that fans of these celebrities are injecting themselves with known diseases that these celebrities carry. So for example, you know, uh, if someone has herpes simplex virus, they will go to this clinic and be injected with that same virus so they could feel closer to that celebrity. Sick. Sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, and obviously it's like it's satirical, but not too far off from where we're at in celebrity culture. And this was made in 2012 as well, like before, obviously the pandemic and, uh, you know, Instagram, I think was just you know, starting to gain traction. Now we have TikTok, but it's really like you can see the connections there to uh, real life for sure. And I think that's what both Cronenbergs are always um, sort of scratching at with their films. It reminds me of Richard Linklater's first film, Slacker, where uh, a character is trying to sell Madonna's pap smear. I don't know if you yes. remember that, like uh, yeah. a character who I believe is played by a member. Yeah, a member, Teresa Taylor, a member of the Butthole Surfers, which was just like a big band in Austin at that time. And uh, yeah, they're trying to sell, uh, I think for like 30 bucks, uh, a, a vial of Madonna's pap smear. Well, you hear about these, you know, certain celebrities selling, like auctioning their underwear off online or like a used tissue or something, you know, all this sick, sick stuff. But like, People are into it. And I read a, a little bit about the inspiration for it. And um, Brandon Cronenberg said that he got the idea, he became fascinated during like a fever dream where he was sick with like the bad flu. And, um, you know, the, the makings of this story kind of started to come to him. And he just was so struck by the idea that this virus he had was passed onto him by another person and it's in his cells, and it was once in their cells. And so in a weird way, they share this grotesque form of intimacy together. And that's even more timely, like I said, with the pandemic now, like you are literally, something is in your body that was so deeply inside someone else's body. It's kind of a, a sick way to, to depict intimacy. Um, but the even more disturbing thing than that was he said he saw Sarah Michelle Gellar on Jimmy Kimmel and she was talking about how she was getting over a cold. And she said, yeah, if I were to sneeze right now, I would infect the whole audience. And the audience started cheering. <laughs> and, and Brandon Cronenberg was like, what? <laughs> like, this is so sick. You know, that was a few years ago. I'm sure people would feel differently. But at the same time, we consume so much celebrity culture right now. And uh, antiviral is just a really smart, um, grotesque and somewhat accurate depiction of where we're at in reality right now and that's i mean depicting parasites or depicting viruses that like multiply or infect or like grow in other people's bodies and just sort of how our psychology is based on how our body mutates is uh it sounds like it's running in the family because it's very much a cronenberg uh obsession at least in his early films in the gooey period but existence the one that that i've picked there's an intimacy involved in playing existence that is beyond description. They just pop your spine with a little hydro gun. Break out of your cage, Paco. I haven't crippled anyone yet. Step into my office. Now I'm warning you. 
going to be a wild ride. It's probably the first Cronenberg movie that I saw because it came out right around the time. I think it's uh, 1999, so I was a freshman in high school. So it's a movie about virtual reality and video games, apparently. And so that, to me, was something interesting. I don't think I understood at all what it was doing at the time when I first saw it. And I was just like, oh, what, what are they doing? Um, I, I still have a hard time with it. Uh I, I feel like I feel like upon this rewatch, like I'm totally engaged. I like I got it completely. Um, but what does sort of, as much as it's a little bit different from those early films that are more obsessed with parasites and virus, where it is still existing in the Cronenberg uh, milieu is its obsession with the body and how these uh, how the body is affecting the psychology of the mind, right? And so if you are plugging in consistently into this alternate reality, it very much feels like a slight sequel to Videodrome. Like if Videodrome wasn't the video cassette, but instead was a a, 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 a gaming console. console. If you're constantly plugging it, your mind is plugging into this alternate reality, what's it doing to your body? And in this, we have a, a, a kind of makeshift terrorist organization who are trying to take down the, um, the people who are, who are uh, anti-reality, the video game programmers. And you have uh, people yelling death to the demoness Allegra, <laughs> who's played by Jennifer Jason Lee. And what I was really struck by about watching it this time was that Cronenberg has always played with this sort of cold style where his actors are sometimes like the framing and the performances are intentionally cold and removed and almost feel like they call attention to themselves that way where you see him developing that even more so in crash but in crash you don't necessarily know that he's engaging with a separate world but in existence in the you know it's ostensibly the entire thing could be a video game so immediately when you have someone getting shot and grabbing Jude Law and saying, go, save her, you must protect the gaming console, they're almost intentionally being self-reflective and jokey about it, but not winky jokey, you know? So like, if you're not aware of Cronenberg and how he's done this before, you could very easily start watching the movie and be like, why are they acting like this? <laughs> like, why are they, why are they all acting like bad actors throughout this? And like, they're all great actors doing it intentionally because they're all existing in like a final fantasy game to the point at one moment, you know, a character gets lost in the game and starts pay, like just moving back and forth. And Jude Law is like, what's going on with him? And Jennifer Jason Lee has to be like, you need to talk to him to get him to re-engage with us. And he says something and the guy snaps back too and starts talking to them again after like just bobbing back and forth waiting to be talked to. So the movie's constantly playing with like what kind, like what it means to be, like what reality means within this movie and how a performance and how framing sort of shapes that. And he does in the end kind of tell you and wink a little bit as like what was reality and what wasn't. So you can kind of view it that way, but sort of like Mulholland Drive a couple years later, you know, it it's not explicit. So you there's still an art, there's still an ambiguity that could like make you argue as to whether or not the whole thing was a video game or just the portion that seemed like it was a video game was a video game in the same way Mulholland Drive does that with dreams. Yeah. And even other films at the time, like I was reading a little bit about it and The Matrix came out the same year, right? It was 99. Yeah. Absolutely. And it was 
it was compared because they're they're very similar but like wildly different you know obviously the Wachowskis are totally different filmmakers than Cronenberg um it was sort of like the antithesis to Matrix as far as like special effects and and everything but as far as like the the time warping mind bending um it was almost reminiscent of like inception you know nolan's yeah. film years later as well like how deep they go within the the game right because there's multiple levels all the way up to the last moment is sort of up in the air of whether or not it's still a simulation right yeah and i think with something like inception and and with the matrix i think especially within the matrix because that's that same year I don't think the matrix plays with any kind of distancing effects on the part of the filmmaker, the way that existence does, where it's like with the matrix, no matter what reality you're going into, the performances are still operating at like a baseline reality level and almost a naturalism. Whereas uh, I hesitate to use the word, the the name, because it's so pre fucking pretentious to do it, but like there is a Brechtian distance that Cronenberg is employing with his, with with his sense, his ideas about reality and, and performance that if you're not aware of it, you're going to watch the movie and be like, why are people doing this? <laughs> right. I think that's what could sort of steer folks away when they're not realizing those subtleties. And he's sort of a provocateur in, in ways too, right? Oh, yeah. He's not, obviously he's a, a hugely prolific figure in, I don't even want to say Hollywood, just like filmmaking. Um, but yeah, it's sort of like, I mean, the, something... the, the gaming console that they're using is a flesh pod. And as they touch <laughs> it, you know, as they touch it and it like triggers their brains, which makes sense that it would work this way in a way that it's like sort of trying to trigger, trigger the cerebral cortex and like all these different, uh, all these different sort of like emotions and physical responses in the body that it would be sort of like flesh and sex related because right? you're trying to associate yourself as closely to some kind of uh, reality by doing it. But, you know, they touch it and it vibrates and, and moans like a woman. <laughs> They're like, you know, and then the way that they jack into it is that they literally plug like a tentacle into an orifice in their spine. Like, yeah, he's a provocateur. For, for anyone who hasn't seen either of these films or any, you know, like we mentioned, Possessor and a bunch of other David Cronenberg films, uh, definitely, uh, you know, great filmmakers in, in their own right. I'm excited to see what, what both of them do next. Oh, yeah. what, is, what is David working on now? Dave, David's got a film. Uh, it's his with first Vigo, film. In right? like, yeah, his first film in like 10 years is with Vigo and Kristen Stewart. And I want to say Leah Sadu. Maybe sit. I think you're right. And Vigo said earlier this year, you know, uh, he was upset that David Cronenberg hasn't been recognized uh, by the Academy more. And he said, you know, here's a guy who delivers films under budget on time or with time to spare. And, you know, feels like he, he doesn't get the attention he deserves. Well, that and his last few films really didn't fare that well, and I think they're great. Like Maps to the Stars, I think is Maps to the Stars. Yeah, yeah, it's such a phenomenal satire. I mean, I don't even know if you could call it a satire. It's so mean. It's such a mean film about L.A. And then Cosmopolis, which is like an extremely prescient film about the financial markets and how, like, as the world collapses there'll be these elites in limos walk driving around just making money off of um, 
you know, uh, nanosecond bets that they can figure out through data. Uh, it's an incredible film. That was like 2011 or 2012 that he made Cosmopolis. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's and been 10, Robert 10 Pattinson, years. Right? Yeah. yeah, Robert Pattinson. The new one's called Crimes of the Future. And it's with, uh, yeah, Leah Sedu, Viggo Mortensen, Kristen Stewart, and uh, other people. I don't know who those other people are. <laughs> yeah. Well, both these films and this whole collection is worth checking out because while uh, uncomfortable, it's uh, it's very truthful. So it's it's good to, you know, these are, it's a classic thing, filmmakers sort of holding up a mirror to society and, and that's always worth digging into. Yeah, which he's always done. And I think I think like he hasn't been recognized by the Academy. I wouldn't expect him to ever get recognized by the Academy personally. They're, the films are too good. I don't think he cares. Yeah. I don't think so either. I mean, I'm sure he'd like it, but like, you know, he, the, a guy who makes Crash is not trying to get recognized by the Academy. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jordan, thanks so much, man. Good talking to you. Ricky, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. That does it for part one of December's Staff Picks. In the next episode, we'll be going over the collections Adrenaline Junkies, The Circuit, and we'll be talking about some epic films for the collection Epics. Thanks so much, everybody.